Some great worship already this morning as we're just celebrating the resurrection. And if you have your Bible, if you don't have one, you can find one in the pew in front of you, a little black book there, and uh, turn to the book of Revelation. And some of you may be thinking, you're kidding me, isn't that the the book with the monsters in it? Um, With all the the heads and the horns and the weird stuff, and that's the book. And uh, we want to look there this morning to learn some important things about Christ, the resurrected Lord of glory. What do you suppose Jesus is doing today? You ever thought about that? You know, what if you could just you know, pop into heaven and kind of check things out and and kind of get a glimpse of Jesus as he is now resurrected and exalted into heaven? You know, what, what would that be like? Well, that's what we're going to find out because Revelation chapter 1 gives us a picture. You know, a lot of times we we kind of use God, I guess we might that might be the best way to describe it. We kind of, you know, just kind of not think about God. We don't want to give to him, serve him, worship him. But then when things go wrong, we kind of treat him like a cosmic vending machine. We put a little prayer tokens in hoping to get out what we want from him. To have him rescue us. Uh, we kind of treat him as maybe a uh, get out of hell free card. Where, you know, we can pretty much do what we want. And because salvation is by grace, then at the end we'll just say, hey, you know, I acknowledge that uh, you were the Savior. And so you're going to let me in or not? Well, Jesus doesn't exist to... Um, pamper us or to give us what we want. He exists because we need to give him what he wants. And he is Lord. This is what Peter told the Jews uh, just at the day of Pentecost when the church was born and there were miraculous manifestations of the spirit being poured out on the apostles and those who were believing. Uh, Peter preached the sermon, his first sermon, and said this in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Christ is Messiah, Savior, Redeemer. So he is not only the Savior, the get out of hell free card. He is Lord. He has made him Lord and Christ. And the word Lord there, kurios, is, is master. It is king. It is sovereign. It is the one who rules my life. If you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying I am the slave. I am the one who submits to Jesus, the Lord of my life. And so Jesus is, yes, the Savior, but he is also Lord. And that's what we see over and over again. But when you talk to people, I think a lot of times we get an incorrect picture of what Jesus is like. And let me just give you an example of this. If I were to say, you know, what is Jesus like? Just kind of tell me about him. Most people, and understandably so, will go to the Gospels. Why? Because in the Gospels, we see Jesus. They're about Jesus's life. We see his teaching. We see him at, react with people and, and do different things. And so we kind of get our picture of what Jesus is like from the Gospel. But what we need to understand is Jesus in the Gospels, is in his humiliation. His humiliation. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, 
Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let me just read it here. This is Paul describing to us what Jesus is like when he came to earth. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, one of his creatures, and being found in the appearance of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here you have Jesus as God, you know, one of the members of the triune Godhead, volunteering to humble himself, to become a man, to be clothed in human flesh. This is what is called the incarnation, to be clothed in human flesh, to be incarnate, And to live in a sin-cursed world among sin-cursed men who will eventually kill him, crucify him. And that was humiliating. So all through the Gospels, when we look at Jesus, we need to keep in our minds that Jesus is in his humiliation. Now listen to me. He is not that way anymore. And he will never be that way again. That was for a time, for a purpose. And that time and purpose is over. Now he is the exalted Lord of glory. And it just so happens after Paul talks about Paul being humiliated. In Philippians 2, he goes on to say in verses 9 through 11, for this reason, because Jesus did humble himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, Paul says, yes, Jesus humbled himself. And yes, he was, he became a slave. He became a bond servant. Yes, he died on the cross. But after that, he was highly exalted. He was lifted up above every name. And that there will come a day when all the angels in heaven, all those who are alive on earth, All those who have died and are in hell and all the demons will bow, Satan included, at Jesus' feet and confess him as the Lord, master, and sovereign of all creation. Well, that is pretty heavy duty. And that is the Jesus, though, that exists today. That is who we worship. That's who we pray to. That's who we sing about. That's who we are to tell other people about. Not Jesus as kind of the, the meek and mousy and humble guy who's being persecuted. And oh, he's a pushover. He wouldn't hurt a, hurt a fly. No. No, that is not Jesus today. 
And as we come to the book of Revelation, I'll just give you a tiny bit of background. The book gets its title and theme from really the first words where it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation there is the word apocalypsis. It's the word we get apocalypse from. And that's why some Bibles might even have their the apocalypse of John or something like that, or just the apocalypse. It means revealing the revealing or manifestation of Jesus Christ. The whole book of Revelation talks about the end times and how The world is heading towards a point in time when Jesus will be revealed in flaming fire, in great glory, so that all eyes will see him. And so the whole book is about how Jesus will be revealed in those events which lead up to his revealing. Now, because our text is pretty big this morning... I'm just going to read it as we go, so it'll be kind of a mystery, and we'll just have to figure it out as we go. But I want to give you two main points so that you can kind of correctly think about Jesus, so that you don't think of him in an incorrect way, but as he really is today, right now, as if you were to pop into heaven, what would you see there? And the first thing that we see from Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 is a glimpse of the Lord of glory. So here John writes this, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Now just stop there. John is the apostle. He is uh, uh, just a fellow believer. He calls himself a brother. And he's also a fellow partaker in tribulation. Why? Because he's suffering right now. He's He's a prisoner. He's, a, he's an exiled to the island of Patmos, a, a, a small rocky island. Uh, if you were to crunch it into a, you know, a rectangle, it'd be about three miles by five miles. Um, and so he, there he is on exile in the Aegean Sea, um, put away for preaching the gospel, which we'll see in a moment. And so he says, yeah, he says, I'm suffering tribulation like many of you are, like really all Christians do when they stand up for the Lord and for the truth. And he says, I just want you to know I'm persevering and I'm persevering because of Jesus. Jesus is helping me persevere this trial of exile on the island of Patmos. And if you look at the end of verse nine, where he says, I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why he was there. He was telling people, he was preaching the word of God and he was telling people about Christ. And, you know, a lot of people were irritated. Jews were irritated. The Romans were irritated because he only taught one God. And so we're going to get rid of him. We'll stick him on the island. It's not that he's a threat. He's a nice 90 year old man, you know, so he's kind of, you know, it's not like he's dangerous and, you know, physically, but because he's preaching the gospel, because he's telling people about Jesus, they're going to stick him on this island and kind of get rid of him. And so John is an exile there. And he's kind of like John Bunyan, who, when he was imprisoned in the Bedford jail for preaching the gospel, and while he was in jail, he thought, well, now what am I going to do? So he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Well, in the, just like the Apostle Paul, um, who wrote some of his best works from prison. So John, on the exile, says, you know, um, since I'm on this island, I guess I'll write. And so that's what he does. God gives him this vision of the future and what is to come. Look at verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, the phrase in the spirit refers to John being caught up by the Holy Spirit into a vision. And uh, you say, well, what is a vision? A vision is like a dream that you have when you're awake. 
it's, it's when God kind of sucks your spirit out of you and transports you into some heavenly realm, some future time, whatever, so that you experience and see something as if you were there, but physically you're not present. You've just been caught up by the spirit into this spiritual realm to witness something um, in your mind. And so that's what's happening here. And it was on, he says, the Lord's day, which is on Sunday. It was called the Lord's day because it's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And John is drawn into this vision in the middle of verse 10 says, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So imagine yourself right now, you know, you're, you know, let's say you, you get home for work one day and you're sitting on the porch or in the backyard or whatever on the balcony. And, and, uh, you're just kind of looking out and all of a sudden, phew, you're in heaven. And all of a sudden you hear this loud voice. He describes that as a voice of a trumpet. Trumpets are loud. They're clear. They're distinct. And he hears it. And so he then turns around. It's behind him. So he hears this voice. And the voice says, according to verse 11, if you look there, write in a book what you see. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum. And to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And these were the major churches in Asia Minor. And they're actually listed here in the order you would go visit them if you were to go visit all the churches. So they're kind of in sequence here. And these are real churches that existed in the first century. Most of these churches Paul um, uh, planted. But they were all there um, existing. And so Jesus... This voice, which we'll find out is Jesus, is now saying, John, write these things down because these things need to go to these seven churches. Now, these seven churches, uh, if you read a little further in the book, in chapter 2 and 3, have problems. They have good things about them and bad things. And Jesus commends and condemns some of the things um, they do. And they really uh, represent all churches. Uh, all, all of them have the strength and weaknesses, which all churches have. So by studying them, you kind of get what God wants really for all of his church. Now, look at verse 12. Where he says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, at this point, you're going, oh, no, here we go. Here's all these symbols and things that no one can ever figure out. And it's just like, what is this? You know, that's why I don't read the book of Revelation. I start reading and go, what does that mean? And it's just so frustrating because I don't know anything. Well, just relax. What happens is. Is most people, when they're reading the book of Revelation, if they just read a little bit further, all of these weird things are explained. For instance, verse 20 says, the seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches just mentioned. Ha! We know what they are. Okay, so now we have this voice and it's coming from the midst of these lampstands. Look at verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the son of man. 
Now, you need to know this phrase. It's plucked out of Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision of heaven, and he sees one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, and it is the Messiah. And so this is kind of a messianic reference here. And so he says, I see one with human form, one like the Son of Man. And Jesus is there in the midst of his churches. And this is kind of cool to think about this. You know, Jesus didn't ascend into heaven and then go, well, man, I hope they figure it out. I hope they get their act together. He is in the midst of his churches. Those churches that teach his truth, that preach his gospel, that worship him in spirit and truth. He is there in their midst. He's watching over. He's protecting. He's guiding his churches. Remember, he made it clear to Peter that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Men's churches, yes. His churches, no. Remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 20. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is always with us. He is always with us. And so we don't need to fear that he has kind of abandoned us. And he's like, well, yeah, he's in heaven. We're down here. We're trying to figure it out. And he's leaving us alone. No, he is in the midst of his churches. And look at the middle of verse 13. He is clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now, if you like robes, you are going to love heaven. I mean, robes are in major style in heaven. I think they're in permanent style there because every time we see anything about heaven, somebody's wearing a robe. I mean, they are major. If you're into fashion, well, you got to change into robe fashion if you're going to heaven because that's what's happening there. No one wants to stick out. No one wants to look different. They just want all the glory to go to Christ. And so here Jesus has this robe all the way down to his feet and he's got this golden sash. And you think, so, so what is this? Well, this is the dress of a high priest. If you were going to the book of Leviticus and read how the priests were to dress, Jesus is dressed like a high priest. Well, why? Because he is. He is, as the author of Hebrews says, the great high priest. And you say, well, what is the function of a high priest? The high priest intercedes between the sinner and God. The sinner goes to the priest. The priest then offers up the sacrifice and is the intermediator between sinful man and God. In the Old Testament, the priest had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. And then they had to offer sacrifices for the sins of others. And then they would offer up sins to God on behalf as the intermediary. Well, here Jesus is pictured as the great high priest. Why? Well, the author of Hebrews makes it clear that the great high priest is one who didn't just go into an earthly temple and offer sacrifices year by year. No, he did something far better. The author of Hebrews describes this in chapter eight and nine and says that Jesus went into that perfect temple, that one in heaven. And he entered into that temple as the great high priest. And he didn't bring the blood of an animal with him. He brought his own blood. So he is both the high priest and the sacrifice. And then going into the temple, he then sits down on the throne in the temple. And he is now the king, the high priest, the king and the sacrifice all wrapped into one, the once for all sacrifice. And this is why we can go to God in prayer. I mean, think about it. 
It's pretty cool that you can just talk with God as a believer. If you know Jesus Christ, you could just talk with God. You know, when you pray, think about this. Think, think as if, you know, whenever you say, oh, Lord, you know, help me with my final. Help me balance my checkbook. You know, help me, whatever. Whenever you do that, it's as if you are instantly presented before Christ, who is on his throne as your great high priest who shed his blood for you. And he wants to hear what you have to say. Is that incredible or what? Hebrews 4.16 says that we can draw near with confidence or boldness to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in a time of need. You need mercy? You need grace? Boldly, with confidence, approach that. How, how come? How come you don't need to? How come you don't need to, like, you know, offer up anything? Because Jesus did it. He's the high priest. He's the offering. And you can boldly approach him. And though he is running the universe... He wants to give you individual attention. That is amazing. And so he is pictured here dressed as a priest because he is a priest and he intercedes for those in the churches of whom he is in the midst of. Look at verse 14 where we see his physical features. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. It's like talking to a junior hire, isn't it? It was like, you know. Like white, like white wool, like snow. But you know, you know how it is. If you, if you're, if you caught up to heaven and you're trying to describe something that you've never seen before, you're kind of at a loss for words. You kind of need to compare things, don't you? You have to say, okay, um, it's, it's, um, it's like this. It's like white wool, like snow. Now, it's not, and we'll see why in a minute, that it's just kind of a flat white color, or even a light gray color. But it's like light bulb filaments, like hair that is just plugged in. <laughs> like what happens, you know, if you drop your hairdryer into the sink, you know, right when you're doing it, you know, <laughs> um, he's lit up, he's lit up. And look at the middle of verse 14. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, a lot of times when you read the Bible and you read about fire, usually we think of like kind of like the, the normal orange fire, fire that, you know, we kind of have when you throw a log on the fire or whatever. Um, but in the scriptures, when it talks about fire, a lot of times it's talking about lightning. For instance, when, you know, fire comes down out of heaven, when the fire comes down out of heaven, it's speaking of lightning, a white, bright light. And so you can just kind of get the picture here where you see Jesus and his hair is just glowing. And out of his eyes, it's just white light radiating. Not only that, he's looking out over his churches. He's got this penetrating gaze. It's like searchlights. And verse 15 says his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace. Now, when bronze is heated to 1200 degrees centigrade, it glows. It glows in a bright yellow. So his feet are glowing. And you kind of get the picture here that Jesus is lit up man. he is plugged in. The guy is glowing. His hair's glowing. His eyes are glowing. His feet are glowing. And that's not all. 
When you, we go a little bit further, we're going to find out that Jesus is radiating light. Now, when you go in the Bible and you do a search of light, it's almost always used as a figure of speech to describe what? Truth. Truth. And here Jesus is presented not only as the Messiah, as the Son of Man in the midst of his churches, interceding for them as their great high priest, but truth is flowing from him. You remember what happened when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto the mount to give them a little glimpse of his kingdom glory? You remember that? Matthew 17, 2 says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. That's what we're seeing here. You see, what what they saw back then, John is seeing again. And this is Jesus today. This is the Jesus we pray to. If you popped into heaven now, this is what's happening. You know, he's not a babe in Bethlehem anymore. He's not a humble servant being persecuted by evil men. He's not hanging emaciated on a cross. His remains are not moldering in some dark, dank tomb somewhere in Israel. He is risen. John goes back to his voice, though. He just can't get over his voice. Yeah, it's like a trumpet. But it's like something else. Look look at the middle of verse 15. That his voice was like the sound of many waters. I don't know about you, but um, if you've ever been next to a huge waterfall, they're, they're cool. They're impressive. I, I've been in, in Idaho. They have Shoshone Falls in the spring. It's just, it's monstrous. It looks like a little Niagara. And then I've been to Upper and Lower Mesa Falls and where the, the, the Henry's Fork of the Snake, which is a big river, it just kind of goes to this just sheer rock cliff and just dumps off and it just pounds with thunder. I mean, you can just hear it. You can feel it in your bones. It like If you get close, you can feel it rattling your whole being. It just rumbles. It's deep. It's thunderous. And you, It's just, you just know, I've been to Yellowstone Falls too, is the same way where it comes off that huge cliff and falls all the way down and it's just, and the one thing that comes to your mind is, man, that is some serious power, power. And that's what John is trying to say. He says, yeah, it's clear, it's distinct, it's loud, but man, it is like the sound of many waters. And if you say, well, you know, I, I haven't gone to those places. Well, you just need to go someplace along the coast during a storm. And those huge waves crashing on the rocks. And you hear the, I mean, you just think, whoa, some power. It's a lot of water bashing up against the rock. That's the whole idea here. And John is looking in wonder. And verse 16 says he saw something else. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And now, don't say, oh, no. (laughs) He explains what this is also in verse 20. He says, the seven stars are the seven angels or messengers of the churches. So in other words, God has appointed messengers and or angels to help the churches. And this is what's cool about it. You see Jesus, the Messiah, As the priest, one who intercedes on behalf 
of the saints in the midst of his churches, appointing messengers or angels to minister to those churches. Isn't that great? It's great. And he holds them in his hand, which means they are under his control. And not only does Jesus have these seven stars in his hand, look at the middle of verse 16, and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. You know, in Greek, there's a a couple different words. One sword is kind of a sword that um, is uh, kind of a dagger. You know, it's one of these things that you might have in your belt and chop up your apple with it. Or if you were in hand-to-hand combat, you might do a, a precise jab with it or whatever. That's not this sword. This is the big, giant, two-handed monster. This is, this is a sword for serious demolition. A big, double-edged, broadsword. And it's clear from other uses of this word in Revelation that it's a sword of judgment. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, if you were to just go, and we won't, I won't have you turn there, but if you look at the message to Pergamum, actually, you can... You can You can turn there if you want. If you look at chapter two, it's probably right there across the page. But if you look at Pergamum and you you look there and you say, okay, to the message of Pergamum, this is chapter two, verses 12 and following. He 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 condemns them because they've been tolerating immorality in the church. They're putting up with immorality and some certain forms of idolatry that aren't specifically mentioned. We don't know exactly what they are, but he says in verse 16, therefore repent or I am coming to you quickly and will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. That's scary. That's scary. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, it describes Jesus' return to earth and his second coming glory. And verse 15 of chapter 19 says, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with he may strike the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So this whole sword all the way through the book is a sword of judgment. Now, when Jesus speaks, he speaks judgment on people. You know, you have to remember that Jesus is God. And because he is God, he doesn't need, you know, to show up and do hand-to-hand combat with people. He doesn't need bazookas or tanks or missiles or nuclear warheads. He just speaks. And it's over. In, Revel- or in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, it speaks of Jesus and says, but... With righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse eight, speaks of how Jesus will defeat the Antichrist at his second coming. You know, is there a big battle? Is there is there a big war? Here's what he says. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. Game over. He can just say, die, and that's it. You know that hymn that we sing sometimes from Martin Luther, the classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and that one line in there that says, of Satan, one little word shall fell him. And that's true. That's why the author of Hebrews describes God's word as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, unable to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's why Jeremiah says in Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine, is not my word like 
a hammer that shatters rock and a fire that consumes. Why? Because it's the word of God, the living God. And when he speaks, his word is accompanied with power. And so this sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth is a sword of judgment against those who will not submit to his lordship. Look at the end of verse 16 where we read, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. I wouldn't recommend this, but we all know that if you were to look up at the sun, um, you would see that it is quite bright, especially when it's at the noon on the middle of summer on a clear day. It's just like the sun. So you get this idea that Jesus' hair, his head, his eyes, his face, his feet, his robe are radiating light. Major and his voice is clear and distinct and loud like a trumpet. It is full of power, like a huge cataract, a waterfall, just thunders. That's Jesus today. Now, what do you do when you see that? I mean, think about it. You know, you get caught up into heaven. You see all that. What do you do? Well, here's what John did. Look at verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Game over. He couldn't handle it. He fainted. He fainted. Think about that. He, here he saw this. and It was so incredible. It was so awesome. Jesus was so glorious that his brain said, whoa, information overload. Too scary. Let me just relax your blood vessels and put you to nine night. <laughs> That's what happens when you faint. Your blood vessels all relax and pretty soon your blood pressure drops and... You wake up, what happened? And that's what happened with John. He sees Jesus in his resurrected glory and it just takes him out. It takes him out. And so there he is, out. You know, Jesus brings him up to heaven. He's out, he's missing it. Now, the second point I want to look at is the credentials of the Lord of glory. So John's out now. Imagine you were John, you're laying there. You don't even know what's going on now. You're sleeping and thankfully so because you're so scared that it made you faint. And look at the middle of verse 17. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. Isn't that amazing? That the Lord of glory, that the creator of heaven and earth reaches down and says, John, John, and John, uh, don't be afraid. Now, why? This is, this is one of the most amazing texts, I think, in all the Bible. Because it shows the tenderness and the compassion and the individual attention that Jesus gives to those who are his, right? I mean, you could try this this week, you know, try calling up the president and say, hey, I'd like to have lunch with you on Tuesday. <laughs> say, listen, pal, you're too small a fish to have lunch with the president. We're talking about God almighty here. And he is able to give everyone who is his individual attention. And so he puts his hand on John and says, get up, sleepyhead. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, the question is, why? Why would Jesus say, don't be afraid? And why was John afraid? 
I mean, John was Jesus' friend, right? He lived with him for three years, right? I mean, they, they did, you know, hang out, live together for three years. And Jesus was John, you know, John was one of Jesus' you know, innermost disciples who went with him on those special excursions. And he was the disciple whom Jesus loved and he lay in Jesus' breast. I mean, you know, John was close with Jesus. So why does... Why does Jesus have to tell John, his bud, his close friend, don't be afraid? And why is John afraid? Well, this is why. Because whenever a sinner gets close to the infinitely holy God, they instantly realize they are sinners. When you get close to God, you just see your sin. And that is why from Abraham and Daniel and David, and you go through the Old Testament, everybody who gets a glimpse of God, all what? Does a face plant. I mean, when you read Ezekiel, Ezekiel just ate dust all the way through his prophecy. I mean, he keeps face planting. Why? Because every time God shows up, it's like, ah! You know, Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am undone. I mean, he's just, nah. And Manoah, when Manoah and his wife saw the angel of the Lord, they just said, okay, we're done. We're, it's over, man. We are, we're dead. It's over. We're dying. Why? Because we saw God. We can't see God. We're sinners. Do you remember what happened at the Mount of Transfiguration? I read the beginning when they were saw Jesus transformed. Then Jesus, they see Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. And Peter, I think, thinks that the second coming is happening and that they're going to, since Zechariah prophesied that they would celebrate the Feast of Booths, he says, hey, I'll, I'll build some tabernacles. And this is what we read in Matthew 17, verses 5 through 8. And while he, that is Peter, was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. I mean, this is deja vu for John. John's thinking, I've been here before. I know this. This happened before. And it's still scary. Because I know what a sinner I am. I know how I have let the Lord down. I know how many things I've done wrong. I know I swore with Peter and the others I would not abandon him. And what happened in this time of greatest need? I ran like a scared baby. But Jesus is loving and he is compassionate. He is tender. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. And he comforts John. He gives him encouragement. He tells him not to be afraid. But I want you to know, he only comforts those who are his. And the question is, are you his? Are you his? Do you belong to Jesus? Are you one of his brothers or sisters? Have you been adopted into God's family? Do you have Christ in you, the hope of glory? And this is really the great message of Easter. You know, I think most people probably know Jesus as the Savior, but do they know Jesus 
as your savior? Is Jesus your savior? You may say, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for sinners, was buried and rose again the third day. But have you had your sins forgiven? You know, I'm sure there are people here who say definitively, I know there are. Yeah, I know Christ. I know I have my sins forgiven. I know I'm on my way to heaven. I have no, no doubt whatsoever. And maybe there's others here who go, uh, I hope so. I think so. Maybe. And maybe there's some here who are saying, you know, no, no, I don't really, I don't really, I don't think I know him, no. As a matter of fact, you may even wonder why you're here, you know. You only go to church during funerals and weddings, and and here you are. And, uh, you know, maybe a friend asked you ten times, and you thought to yourself, well, okay, I'll go, just so they don't wear me out. And maybe some of you actually are here because you, you know, you just got this idea that, you know, hey, you know, I think I might go to church. I've been to church, and I want to see what goes on in those buildings. And Easter's kind of a big church day, so let's just check it out. You know, if that's you, you are an answer to our prayers. We have been praying for weeks that God would bring people here this morning who might not know Christ and who need to hear the good news. I think most of you probably have heard the term gospel. You know, you hear about gospel music and gospel preachers, and maybe you've even used the idiom, well, that's the gospel truth. But you know what the gospel is? You know, the gospel is this message that one must understand and believe in order to be saved. And a lot of people, though they know the term gospel, and they might know it means good news, they don't know what the good news is. Some even know what the good news is, but they don't know what to do with the good news. And so I want to talk about that. And the first thing to understand the good news is to understand the bad news. Why do you need good news? Because there's bad news first. The bad news is that all mankind are sinners. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. And you say, well, what do you mean by sinner? I mean, there are things that you have done and thought or deed that haven't given God glory, that have broken his law, like lusted or coveted things or, you know, um, lied, you know, committed idolatry. And you may be thinking, well, listen, man, I haven't committed any idolatry. I mean, I don't have any statues at my house. I don't have any totem poles or anything. Well, listen, idolatry is nothing more than giving to someone or something that which belongs to God, whether it's time or resources or devotion. It's like, ah, see, that's kind of painful. You know, sometimes I worship my tools. Um, You know, you think, well, yeah, I probably give my tools a little bit too much attention or my yard or my car or that little box the plasma thing on the wall um you know these kind of things are things that sometimes we neglect what we should be giving to god and we neglect god well that's just a form of idolatry so really we're all sinners and the bible says that if we break one law we break them all so we're 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 sinners we're sinners and you know you can just if you want an example just think of one commandment here's a commandment here this is, this is what Jesus said the great commandment is. So if you can do this one, you're safe. All you got to do is from the moment of your birth, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength all the time. Now, how'd you do? See? Okay, so we're all sinners. And that's why Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Yes, you might not be the axe murderer, and thankfully so, but you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. And because we are sinners, and because God is perfectly holy and perfectly just, he has to punish sin. He can't let anybody go. He can't, you know, a lot of people think, well, God forgives because he just kind of says, okay, I know what you did, but I'm just going to kind of sweep it under the rug. God doesn't do that. Every sin will be punished to the full extent. He will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. Now, if you're sitting there and you're thinking right now, but Pastor Jack, come on. If everyone is a sinner and you have to be perfect because God is perfect, how can anyone get to heaven? You have arrived at the right answer. That is the bad news. That is the dilemma. Now, thankfully, God has allowed one way for guilty sinners to escape the just punishment they deserve, which is hell. One way, and it's called substitution. Substitution. That is, all that has to happen is an innocent person who has never sinned needs to show up and say, hey, I'll tell you what. I am willing to suffer the punishment this person deserves upon myself so that your justice can be satisfied completely against sin. And I will take that punishment so that guilty person can go free. Substitution. Now, another problem. Another problem is, is that the Bible teaches that everybody is a sinner in Adam. When Adam fell, he became a sinner and was cursed. And so all of his children are sinners. You know, because he's a sinner, he can only give birth to sinners. And those sinners give birth to other sinners. And here we all are. So, the, oh, yeah, substitution's real great. All you got to do is find a perfect person. But where do you get that? Through one man, Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, sin spread to all men. Bummer. And not only do, do we, are we sinners in Adam, we're sinners because we, we do our own sins. And we're doubly sinners. And so God then devises this plan for substitution. But the problem is, how do you find a perfect, innocent person who's willing to give their life in substitution for you and for me? Since everybody, all the human race is sinner in Adam. Here's how. God came to a virgin named Mary and the power of the Holy Spirit came over her. And she conceived in her womb and gave birth to a son. And that son didn't have a human father. So he didn't receive the curse passed down from one father to the next from Adam. He had God as his father, but being born of a woman, he was fully man and fully God. That's how. And we know who that is. Jesus. That's why Jesus came to earth. You know, a lot of times you think, why did Jesus come to earth? Well, it wasn't because God wanted to make sure that, you know, we could do enough good work so we could get into heaven. You know, Hollywood has taught people, wrongly so, that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Listen, there's only one kind of person who goes to heaven, bad people, and one kind of person that goes to hell, bad people. 
You are a sinner if you go to heaven, and you're a sinner if you go to hell. The only difference is one one group, the heaven group, they get to go to heaven not because they're good, but because Jesus was good and because they have believed in Jesus, the substitute for sinners. And then they get to go free. And so that's why Jesus came to this earth. He did not come here to do some sort of social experiments where, where God was thinking, you know... I would really like to see what it's like to be a human, to be live, grow up in a sin cursed world and to be hated by men and crucified and just kind of check it out and gain some knowledge. God doesn't need any knowledge. He's got all knowledge. He knows what it's like. He knows everything. No, Jesus had to be born so that he could live that perfect life so that he could die in the place as a substitute for sinners. That's why Jesus came to earth. Not because we needed to be good, but because we're bad and he's good. See, in the Old Testament, God had them offering sacrifices. If you go back even to the earliest chapters of Genesis, they offered sacrifices. An innocent animal, an unblemished animal, was laid in the altar. The person would confess their sins on that animal, and then the animal was killed. His blood was drained out. And you know what? They did that. Now, you could imagine if you were really honest with yourself, and even if you had a very large herd of animals, how frequently you would be killing animals. And pigeons and bulls and lambs. I mean, anything you could get your hands on that fit into the law. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, honey, let's, let's go and offer sacrifice. And all right, you get there on the way back. It's like, well, honey, why did you do that? Like, oh. Um, Let's go get another lamb and go back. Um, you know, I mean, you'd be back. You'd be wiped out. And that was the whole point. They kept going back and going back. And you're saying, well, why did God have them do that? Why did he keep having them go back time and time, year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice? Why? So that they would learn some important things like, one, I am a sinner. Two, God is holy. Three, if I'm going to approach a holy God, I need an innocent party to die in my place. And four, to get to the place where you would just think, Lord, when are you going to like send a sacrifice? Is they going to take care of this? Some once for all sacrifice. So I don't have to keep going back. And that's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus said, what? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He realized this is the once for all sacrifice. When this sacrifice is given, it'll be over. No more temple, no more any of that. We'll be able to go free. Now let's get back to our text. Revelation. Look here. Look at verse 17. Back to our vision. Jesus says in verse 17, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. The word I am is the memorial name of God. He he. He invokes the memorial name, the ago me. I am. I'm the existing one. And then he also says the first and the last, which is another name of God in the Old Testament. It appears in Isaiah 41.4 and 44.6 and multiple other places where it says, I am the first and the last, the only one. So Jesus says, I'm God and I'm God. This is why you don't need to be afraid. Look at verse 18. He says, I am the living one. Guess what? Another title of God. Over and over in the Old Testament, he is the living God, the living God, the living God. And this is exactly what the angels told the women who came to the tomb and said, where is Jesus? And he said in Luke 24, verse 5, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. 
Come on, you're slowing down. (laughs) Jesus died, but he was resurrected. And in the middle of verse 18, look there. That's what he says. John, you don't need to be scared. I'm the great I am. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. John, you don't need to be scared. I died for you. I bore your sins in my body on the cross. I rose from the dead so that you can be assured that you're going to rise from the dead too. We don't worship a dead savior. And then finally, at the end of verse 18, he says, listen, I have the keys of death and Hades. Death and Hades is where unbelievers go and they will be thrown in the lake of fire. According to Revelation 20 verses 13 through 15, the end of the age. So Jesus is the judge. He's the executioner. He is the warden. He holds the keys and says, John, don't be afraid. Listen, I died for you. I am your great high priest. I am full of truth. I am in the midst of my churches. I intercede for you. I died for you. I am the living one. I am the great I am. So don't be afraid because you are mine and I am yours. John said in John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And Jesus said to Nicodemus in John three sixteen that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. In Romans six twenty three it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. You don't have to walk on broken glass or sleep on a bed of nails for 20 years. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, he says, But what does it say? What do the scriptures say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. Listen to this, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, your Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And that's what Easter is about. Coming together to believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead after having died for your sins, that he is Lord and you're Lord and you're going to live for him. And this is the good news. So as we leave here today on this fine Easter Sunday, may we all remember that Jesus is the resurrected Lord of glory. That right now he is reigning in heaven. And that someday he will return to earth to judge the wicked and to save the righteous. Make sure you know Christ and don't delay. He will save you because he is the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the vision of the resurrected Lord so we could see him as he is today. We thank you for his ministry as the great high priest, the sacrifice for sinners, the one who is dead but is alive forevermore, the great I am, the living one. Father, we are so blessed to have your truth. And Father, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you, anybody here who has come and You know, Easter is just kind of a 
something they do maybe periodically, come to church. I pray that they would come back next week and the next week, that they would hear your truth, that they would get their questions answered, that you would bless them greatly because of it and that you would be glorified. Father, now as we sing one last song to you, may you be exalted as we marvel at Christ's resurrection and praise you for his glory and his exaltation that he now reigns in undisputed sovereignty. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.